Hi and welcome to Förnyarna intervjuar. You can translate that as interviews by the reformers. These interviews are a supplement to me and Anna Branten's ordinary podcast Förnyarna that we do in Swedish. But we're thinking these interviews are going to be both Swedish and international. So let's get on with it. Today we're going to listen to a nice conversation that I had with Mr. Chris Thompson in Bali last year. And we're going to talk about the future of education. How can we raise kids to be able to adapt in this new world? To make them ready for the change that is coming. Me and Chris have met in the fantastic community surrounding Green School Bali where we both have our kids. I've come to know Chris as a natural leader, always there with a lot of support for people around him, both young and old. But maybe one of the things that strikes me the most with Chris is his openness. Not only to people and cultures, but to the notion of what it means being a man, feminism, and his own white male privilege. This conversation was recorded on a sunny day in Bali. Well, you know, it's always sunny in Bali, but in the media hub of Green School. It's in the middle of the jungle. The hub is in a white little house made of clay, made by students as part of their education. And it looks like something out of the Hobbit's village in Lord of the Rings. You will be hearing kids play, the whistle of the gym teacher, and this high-pitching noise that is the constant background sound made by the Bali crickets. Now, let's listen to Chris and a piece he wrote about the big change in his life. I stared in the mirror of the airplane bathroom, crying. It happened every time I flew. On this occasion, I just watched the movie Braveheart starring Mel Gibson as William Wallace, the historic Scottish rebel who led an uprising against the cruel English ruler Edward Longshanks. The movie celebrates honor and devotion to a grand cause. Wallace was fighting for the sovereignty of his nation and he made the ultimate sacrifice. Me, I was making and selling video games. I started working at Electronic Arts when I was 23, straight out of Stanford. EA was a magical place filled with dreamers wanting to tell stories through interactive entertainment. And unlike most of my other friends who were going into banking, real estate, or other more traditional roles, I didn't have to wear a tie. I was lucky to have had the opportunity to work with these talented artists. But after 23 years in six countries, I'd literally spent more than half of my life with EA. The corporate life was stripping me of my humanity and shaping me into something I'd never intended to be. Something was wrenching at me. I was torn between the life I had and the life I wanted. I needed to do something more meaningful. Thank you, Chris. I just, I love this text. I mean, you wrote it as a part of being the director of the Hubbard co-working place in Ubud in Bali. Uh, but can you tell me us a little bit more about the life you had and the life you deeply felt that you wanted? Yeah, well, um, after I spent 25 years or 23 years with Electronic Arts traveling all over the world, and I spent 20 of the 23 living in Europe and lived in Asia for a long period of time, helping on the international development of this company. And I really loved it. But underneath all that, I always had this Um, incredible passion for education and changing the narrative around learning and education. So even when I'd go and speak at conferences or talk or when I was in Singapore sitting on educational boards, that was my my focus and that was my interest. And so one day we were just done and tired. I got tired of the corporate world. I was burnt out and we packed up and we moved our entire family down to Bali. So was it, was it like the transition? I mean, was it hard? Quit. I mean, you said you were standing on that plane crying for, I don't know, years? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, so it, it really, uh, my time at EA was, I loved it. I really genuinely loved it. And But the, the video game industry definitely transitioned and changed a lot during the time that I was there. But my last six or seven years at EA, I was getting a little bit out of alignment with who I was, my passion and my purpose. And going into work each day was was just a little bit unsettling. And I just, I, I wasn't as committed to what I was doing. And I actually was gonna leave the company when I was working in Japan and I told them I'm going to leave and move on, but they asked me if I could go down to, to Singapore. And of course the golden handcuffs and all the other things that come up in the corporate world. Moved to Singapore, was there for six years and I loved it for a couple or a few years, but 
but my heart was was really out of it. So mm-hmm. something inside of me had been niggling at me for a, a very long period of time. And I just needed to give that space to be able and just listen to it and just say, what do I want to be doing with myself? And that sent me on this new path and this new journey. So you didn't have any job when you came to Bali. You were just like, I'm going to take some time off or how, how do you do that? I, I well, <laughs> yeah, well, the idea was to come to Bali and not have a job. Mm-hmm. So I wanted, I wanted uh, but to give yourself I, time. I, give and myself like, time. I yeah. wanted to clean the slate and spend some time with my wife, Joanne, and, and time with our, with our two kids who had been born in Asia and, and really just do nothing. But mm-hmm. I was still sitting on a board in Abu Dhabi advising the government of Abu Dhabi on the development of their media technology and education industries. And I was doing the same in Singapore. So, mm, but these little were job. little, yeah. <laughs> little things, but they were, they were board roles. So I was mm-hmm. just there on a quarterly basis. But then I was, came down and was at green school where our children were attending. And within two months, I'm spending 30 hours a week with the school and then I get onto the board and then I'm the chairman of the board and then they ask me if I'd like to to run the school and become the director of the school and so I'm not always so very good about about saying no and but it it what was different though while the time commitment was more I was wholly passionate and it was in complete alignment as to what I wanted to be doing. So it was worth yeah. the effort and the energy of the things that I was doing with Green School. We both have our kids at Green School, but can you tell everyone who doesn't know what Green School is, what it is? Yeah, well, Green School started about 10 years ago, and it was um, um, started by John and Cynthia Hardy, who had been living in Bali for about 30 years, and they wanted a different educational model for their children. And they wanted a a school that was focused on sustainability and environmentalism that was really looking at the aspects of learning that were were that worked and were very important and looking at the research and bringing in people and creating a learning model that was not random or just driven by any sort of irrational drive, but was really driven by logical research and setting it up. And so it's a beautiful school, all made of bamboo, and it's had worldwide coverage. And people from all over the world have come to the school and spent time here, from Richard Branson to Dr. Jane Goodall to uh, the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon to even Ben from Ben and Jerry's came to Green School, and he made ice cream uh, for, for all the kids. So the, the children are still learning math and English and science and, and, all the, and all these different things, but they're out there, they're doing, they're experiencing, and they're operating around these ideas of a focus thematic, which integrates the various subjects into, into a particular theme or topic. So then they, they have a better understanding, a better context as to why they're actually learning something. And our kids, the bottom line of it is that children love going to the school. And my kids love going to the school. And yeah. to me, that is the key to learning and education. If the kids want to be there, they will learn. And yeah. so Green School is quite a unique place with its teachers and its learning model. Yeah, my kids, at Saturdays, they're like, oh, I wish it would be Monday so I can go to school. <laughs> and also, if you hear like additional noise when me and Chris are talking, it's because we are, we are at Green School right now and we're in this media hub. But... It's bamboo roof or whatever, so yeah, there's you a hear class, people and there's class, class going on above, above us yeah, right now. Yeah, so if, if it's a bit noisy, you know why. Mm-hmm. Go to school, get good grades, go to a good university, get a good job, make a lot of money, get married, have two kids, buy a house, put on the white picket fence, and then you will be happy. So it was this the perspective for you when you grew up, too? Sure. I mean, and this is, you know, the, the bigger piece around it, is that this is really what everybody grows up with in mm-hmm. some shape or form that that mantra is what exists whether you're going to school in india or china or japan north america or in europe and so we have this socialized institutionalized model with an end goal of getting a university degree and and so you know up until just even you know a few years ago really the idea was always go get a university degree do this get a university degree even though we know that so many kids, most kids actually weren't enjoying school, but there was a promise and the promise was always, well, okay, we know you don't like school and I didn't like school, but, but once you start working and making money, then you'll be happy. Mm-hmm. Now, the research is so clear on this that the money isn't equating to happiness. And you're seeing, you're seeing dissatisfaction rates in the world based upon research of 80% within the workplace. 
So that means 20% of people are satisfied with the work they're doing. So when you have kids that spend, the majority of kids are unhappy in school, like in the US where you have children are bored 70% of the time and depressed 80% of the time in high school, and then we're sending them into a working environment where they are guaranteed to be unsatisfied with their work. It, to me, it's so immoral and unethical, it's incredible. So sad. It, it's very sad, oh. and, and it's, it's, it's depressing, and, and it, what's worse is that we know it. Yeah. But we have these patterns as parents, and even I you know, like to think that I'm quite progressively minded, but I still fall back on old patterns that, that I grew up with. Yeah. But we, this is what we need to change. This is what is so important ar around education. We as parents and as a society need to step back from this and say like, hey, some kids, university is great. For a bunch of kids, it isn't great. They should go start their own job or they should go to a vocational school or they should um, take a year off and do a gap or they should f do, there's 30 other models for how we could be doing something around education and learning. And getting back to this passion piece if children are able to 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 follow what they like to be doing then they will be pursuing a career that they're more interested in and to be have higher satisfaction rates yeah. but there's a really interesting problem that exists within the school system the, the a spiritual aspect and that's battling with the intellect which i really believe creates this problem mm -hmm. what do you mean the battling with the intellect well so all schools all schools in the world are focused on um, just developing the intellect, mm -hmm. a, putting information into the child's into the child's head. They regurgitate that information, and our entire education is set up based upon grades and testing. So as children go through this process, and as they're getting their grades and tests, the kids who get A's are good kids. The kids who get B's are okay. The kids who get C's, well, they're kind of on the cusp of being challenging. And the kids who get D's and F's are failures and problematic. And so as the children go through school, what they're being told is that your intellect is the only thing that's important. But we all know, all your listeners here know for a fact that we are not just built from our intellect. We have a spiritual side, a secular spiritual side. We have an emotional side and we have a physical kinesthetic side. And the spiritual side is not religion. It's, a, it's our creativity and our wisdom. Yeah. It's, our, it's our intuitive sense. It's that little voice in us that is sort of telling us what to do and that guides us. But as you're going through the education system, that gets suppressed. And as you're continuing to suppress that, really when you graduate from school and then you go to university where then it is an exacerbated problem, you believe that you can resolve all the issues of the world with your head, mm -hmm. including personal relationships and marriages and, and everything else, which we all know you don't pull upon history and science and mathematics to resolve a fight that you're having with your partner, your boyfriend, or your girlfriend. Yeah. And so this very particular issue to me is the key to it. So how do we address the whole child? So green school, that is what it is actually trying to do. It's trying to address the whole child and not suppress the spiritual aspect of the child. And then if we can do that, that allows the child to go out, out into the world and engage the world as a whole being. I think a lot of people would say, yeah, but if we let everyone just follow their own passions, we're not going to get any structure and we're going to have like wildlings everywhere, right? Well, so, you know. well, okay, so, so I have two responses to it. Yeah. One is um, I don't think that that would happen. And the other one is what we're doing now is not happening. I mean, as you just said a second ago, how sad it is. Mm -hmm. And if you talk to most parents in the world, how sad it is. And, and you know, we can talk about this even further when you look at the suicide rates around the world and the, and the direct relationship that is attached to the pressures that go on within school. Mm -hmm. So this isn't just about, oh, a kid's not happy liking math. This is, this is a very deep systemic issue that is having a profound effect on, on, on society. Yeah. And, um, but it isn't about just letting children run free and do whatever they want. As parents, of course, the younger they are, we have to curate and nurture and direct, but we don't remove choice from them. You see, the key to learning within the classroom, one of the key multipliers when it comes to, to efficacy within the classroom is when children feel in control of their education, mm -hmm. when they feel ownership. 
And so, but what education does is it wholly removes ownership. It's basically saying, learn this, and then I'm going to test you. We, yeah. we, we remove almost everything. Mm -hmm. And then even apply this into the working world. What is the most frustrating thing for employees is when they don't feel like they have a path of growth or when they don't yeah, feel like their, their voice choice, is, being, yeah. is being listened to. Mm -hmm. And so it's really, and, and this is not my view. This is not Green School's view. This is, this is research based upon decades and decades of inputs and information and information that really that countries at the national level like Finland are utilizing. So yeah. it's no longer a topic of whether the education system works or doesn't work. That really most people in the education system have moved beyond that. And now, but now that the challenge is how can we change the system? Yeah. That's the big challenge that exists right now. And do you think that's possible within the existing systems or do you need to make new schools and start from scratch like here at Green School? So um, I, I kind of, so I, I believe that it's going to, um, it's going to be a, a mixture of, mm -hmm. of both. I think that there, it's getting to a point right now where it is, it's um, with issues around suicide and depression, um, issues of opioid and drug crisis, and you know the use that you have yeah. within schools. Um, it, it, it's a problem. So it's coming to a, a critical area. There are millions of amazing teachers in the world that that already know this. There are yeah. hundreds of great schools that are already trying to do this. You're already seeing Finland at the national level try to do it. And I know for a fact, countries in the Middle East, as well as say Singapore, also know exactly what they need to be doing, but they, they, they're trying to figure out how they make this, this systematic change. And the real issue is the parents. Yeah. See, the parents, we hold on to our own patterns and with our, because of our own fears, we then apply those to, to our children. And so it is, it, it's going to require this cognitive shift within society by parents and the older generation that we just need to let go and trust our children and and allow them to move move through the school system you know still with teachers and and you can have subjects but just allowing them to engage in the world and removing things like testing and removing things with like grades which are so outdated as a concept and box the child anyways so I, I think it's going to be a little bit of both and I think you're going to see pockets around the world where you're going to see this really accelerate yeah, yeah it's a utopia too right to like Oh, we skip all the traditional schools and we're doing new ones. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, but I, I go through these phases with my kids here um, in green school, like wanting to testing them and like, oh, are they on the same level as back in Sweden where we come from? Uh, how are they doing in math or what are the classical things? And still, I, I'm coming from a background with no traditional. Mm -hmm. I don't have an academic, um, what do you call it? Degree. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what's called. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that thing. That thing. That thing. You know, the yeah. academic degree you could be good to have. But it's uh, and and I tell you that's also been hard, coming from the other way around, following my passion since I was, and being allowed doing it kind of. And I I opted in because I wanted to go to a creative kind of school because in Sweden you can choose from mm. academic like high school, but you can also do more like dance or theater, or whatever. But I, I choose, I chose a academic one to have some like basics. What I'm really happy for, because I don't want to be like a Van Gogh or Picasso who is like standing on a room being creative and crazy yeah. and not knowing my numbers kind of, you know, I wanted to be like a little bit more entrepreneurial and that was good, but I, I can still feel like uh, it's been really hard, like going against the whole system and trying to break free from it and also having a kind of, in Sweden we say academic complex. Mm -hmm. It's like an, uh, a feeling in, uh, uh, inferior to academics. It's like in, uh, this thing in Sweden we call about it, that, that I don't have any education. I don't feel as good as many yes. other. Uh, and sometimes I always, I mean, it was just like last year, I was like, oh, I hope my kids are gonna get like a traditional education and then burst mm -hmm. free. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of hard. Well, and and so, and I really do get that. And here was, and I I was lucky enough to end up in 
Silicon Valley in the mid 80s, before the whole technology boom yeah. happened, before all these big companies, you know, before the Googles, you know, Apple was around and, you know, in, it, in its infancy. And I go out there with a degree from Stanford and I went through the traditional model and it roughly worked for me, right? I kind of fit in with it, <clears throat> but I saw the limitations of it. And I go into, you know, I'd been interviewing at banks and investment banks and all these mm -hmm. other things. And I'm wearing a tie and I'm like, oh, God, it just doesn't yeah. work for me. And, they're, and I show up at this company and they have like this touch keypad to get in and they have purple furniture. Mm -hmm. and, and it was completely different than anything else. It, not even speaking to anybody, you saw it was different. Then you walk into the front doors and it's, it's an open platform and there's, there's the Nerf balls, like mm -hmm. toys around and every <laughs> desk has, has oh. all these cool yeah. ogres and gargoyles and vampires and sci-fi and post. There was just this life that existed. Mm -hmm. And this, this company was creating these amazing games and technology and just creating this, this, this magic and what they called real life in a box. How do we, how do we put life and simulate it into, you know, into mm -hmm. a gaming system? And, and so but what was so amazing to me was more than half of all the people there had no college degree. Yeah. You see, so so for me, when I hear this now about, oh, you don't need a college degree, well, it's like, well, well, yes, you do. The biggest, most successful industry in the world and the biggest companies in the world, the $4 trillion companies in the world, Google, Amazon, Apple, and Microsoft, all came from technology, all came from Silicon Valley, all were effectively built by rogue people that operated outside of the box, box and were built mm -hmm. by people without college degrees. So it, you don't need to look very far. Like if you're worried about your kid, oh my God, they need a college degree to do this. It's like, no, they don't. Now, in some roles, in some places, like I think if you're going to be a heart surgeon, it's probably not a bad idea to have studied heart surgery at a university for no, a period yeah. of time. And, you, and going to MIT is a fantastic place to become an engineer and be with like-minded people today to be working at a place like Google or an Apple. But how these places were created in the first place came from people like you, you know, who did not grow up in this classic academic world. Yeah. Steve Jobs is, is the, you know, he's the, the, the example that's often used, mm -hmm. someone that did not go to university. Yeah. So I don't need convincing. The data is there. No, and I, and I think listening to you now, uh, something I haven't really thought about is that I think that I grew up and was just like playing it by whatever I straps and straws I found or whatever you call it, you know. But I mean, if you can help kids, to, if you if you are an MIT person or a, a surgeon or whatever, and you can like fulfill that kid's dream of doing that, and that needs like hardcore, traditional academic way, that's good. But if you have if if you are someone like me, and then maybe I can get the tools of how I could learn more or you know shape myself a little bit more because that's been the hard part yeah. like doing it without any help so i mean so it's not like letting every people like let all the kids go and just like here take what you don't have to learn anything it's just like the guiding them in a good way right yes and, and i mean i mean i could never imagine you kind of being in a box like i mean you would redesign the box or destroy the box you do something <laughs> oh, to, you know to the to, to get out and so again there's nothing wrong with university for a, a certain group of kids yeah. statistically it's about 15 percent mm -hmm. it's Only? about 15 yeah. percent and what most people don't know is that on a worldwide basis for all children that go to high school or high school equivalents roughly half go on to get a university degree and so even right now, it's only about half that, ex that, that exists within the world. Mm -hmm. But particularly in, in, you know, in still the, the, the idea and the mantra and the, and the idea that's in the developed world and the developing world now is that getting the degree is the ticket to success and happiness. Mm -hmm. And I can still understand that argument in certain parts of the world if you're trying to get yourself out of poverty to do everything you can to be... But, in general, it's it it it's it's failed and archaic thinking. Yeah, and it's again then we're basing all our values on 
buying stuff what are you going to do with all that money what is happiness i mean happiness is not it's not something it's not like a level in super mario that you reach and you're going to be there and then you can take the next step i mean happiness is fleeting i mean it's this one professor professor from sweden mike uh, michael dalian and he's called the happiness professor because he's been doing a lot of research about it and he's like if you if you win the lottery i mean in three months like happiness can be consistent for like about three months then it's gonna like switch again yeah. so i mean the notion we're, we're looking for something who's not even really there right yeah and i think i mean my general simple philosophy is uh, be kind yeah be kind and if you want to take another level do good be good mm -hmm. and 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 that and when and so and from that you can extend on things like happiness but i think we misinterpret we, we, we so often like, particularly in this world now of Facebooks and divisive politics and all this stuff, we do not like gray discussions. We always like to have it binary. Yeah. It's yes or it's no. It's black or it's white. Yeah. You're Republican or Democrat. You're conservative or you're liberal. You're happy or you're not happy. Mm -hmm. Well, that isn't the case. No. I'm, I'm kind of happy today yeah. or hey I'm really happy today and there's some days where I'm not happy you know or when, even a minute right I, I mean you were happy 30 minutes ago and then you came here and I was smelly right. and then you're not happy anymore so it's we, like <laughs> we, we misinterpret these things so much and you hear it all the time well the goal isn't to be happy well I mean honestly if you just kind of step back you know if you're just saying what does it mean to be happy? It means that we have healthy relationships. We are functioning as a whole person. Mm -hmm. My body is happy. My mind is happy. My heart is happy. My family, my friends are happy and content, content and we're operating. I enjoy going, going to my work. So, but if I look at it as this absolute of kind of a nine out of 10 scale, it, it becomes a silly argument. So, um, what are you your um, advice to educators out there i mean you've been the director for a green school do you have any tips within the system we were touching it a little bit but yeah well i think so the most important thing is um i mean when people come to green school and they see that it's made out of bamboo and you know it has a little bit of a hippie attitude sometimes and you know and I, I like to joke that you know some people think that you know our curriculum and our, our learning model you know, happened one night with a bunch of green school parents holding arms, singing Kumbaya around a tree, and the, the curriculum fell from the sky, right? And it, it isn't. The school's original learning model was based upon research. And mm -hmm. so this is what gets people so much in that, in, and this is what is so problematic right now, because the educators, I can bring in any head of school anywhere in the world right now and put them there, even heads of universities, and none of them, none of them will defend the current education system. Mm. None of them. No. And so um, it doesn't mean that there aren't parts of it that are doing well or that it doesn't work for a, a certain group of people. So the, the, the very first thing is, is for us to be honest and to step back and to and to look at the research and say we need to implement this mm -hmm. and then now how does that take brave leadership to go and say to parents we're not going to test your kids anymore mm. we're not going to give grades anymore we're going to shorten the school day we're not going to be giving your kids homework we're going to be stopping math after grade seven we're going to be incorporating more of these things and we are changing the entire learning model. And now to your listeners right now when they're thinking like, well, this is just nuts and crazy, well, just go Google what's happening in Finland. Mm -hmm. And seeing all those things that I've been talking about is exactly what they do. And that's, so that, that is, that, that's the first thing. Mm -hmm. and, and an example of this, and I, um, <clears throat> I won't comment about the country or the school, but it was one of the top schools um, from early years up through high school in all of Asia. 6,000 mm -hmm. students, people, parents pay $50,000 per student to be going to the school. And their two heads of school came down and spent some time with me here at Green School when I was running Green School. And at the end of their time, they said to me, Chris, we wish we could be doing the learning model that you are doing here at Green School at our school. Mm -hmm. He says, but we can't because of the parents. So could you imagine 
these guys standing up in front of 12,000 parents and saying, we would just like to tell you that you were paying us $50,000 each and what your kids are doing right now doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Be, and that that's the reality. So we almost don't need to, to get there. I don't think there are actually that many more tips because there's not an educator or an educational leader in the world that is really going to disagree with how do we get through this? How do we move? And I think it's going to take brave leadership. Yeah. So uh, one of my dreams is instead of, you know, opening up the paper and reading about Trump in the, the, <laughs> the cover, I hope I open up the paper tomorrow and it says every teacher in the United States, States has gone on strike because the learning model stinks and we need to change it. Mm-hmm. That to me would be beautiful. And see, intuitively, back, when we go back to the spiritual side, parents know that the learning model doesn't work. They know it, but they can't let go of to what they've grown up with. And that's why this generation, Gen Z, is in a very powerful position because they know the outcome of work and dissatisfaction, and they know that school isn't working. They're really the first generation that that consciously is aware Mm -hmm. of, of both of these things. So, but I just give one more tip schools are often restricted because of, you know, because of funding and you have to get a certain amount of kids into universities or getting A's to be getting funding from the state and stuff like that. But you can still operate within your school and bring in certain tactics and pedagogies that work within the school. Mm -hmm. And so, so, and many teachers do that. They say like, yep, I know that I'm supposed to do this, but I'm, I just teach it this way. And this is what, so you can be roguish within your organization, even as a leader to be able to, to make change. Yeah. And just having these kind of conversations, right. And putting on statistics or whatever, and this, this system change, whatever resonates in whatever now with the economical system or with uh, how we're treating nature or whatever, we know we're doing a bad thing, but we're, we're continuing doing it. And then that's why we have to change the conversation around it, I guess. So when you were going and saying so many people are not happy with their education or the jobs or whatever, and this is crazy that we lead this education system, it's also kind of crazy that the education system is based on something that was like invented in the 19th century because of the, the industrial movement that was coming, and then we just like kept on going with it. That's also kind of crazy, right? Yeah, completely crazy. Yeah. I mean, we... we and. And we we stick with these outdated models that had a role and a purpose. We were trying to disseminate information. Mm -hmm. I mean, the population of the world at the beginning of the century was a billion people. You know, now it's it's over seven billion people. And so it was it was a very different world that we were that we were operating it in. And education and universities played. I think an appropriate role during that time. And you still had rogue people and that were breaking out of the model and doing things, but we've continued to apply that, that has created this cookie cutter system. And when we are now treating every, we effectively treat every child exactly the same through the system and we're grading them the same, mm-hmm. it is really inane and nuts. I mean, one of my favorite <clears throat> cartoons that I think brings this all together, it's a, it's a little comic strip. And I can't remember the animals, but it's like a, it's a zebra and it's a giraffe and a monkey and an elephant. And the teacher's sitting at the front of the class and the teacher says, okay, class, today's test is you're going to climb, you're going to climb the coconut tree and bring down a coconut. So, I mean, who, who gets an A? The monkey. So, but, but does that make the elephant stupid? Of course it doesn't. But this is our testing system. And when I say our testing system, I mean the worldwide testing Mm -hmm. system. We're, we're giving a test that only a, a certain amount of people can actually do well with, mm-hmm. and then we think they are the smart ones. And I mean, how absurd is that? that is, it, it's, so, it's so crazy, but we don't like to take a step back and observe this and actually really think about this. And mm-hmm. when I give this example to so many people, they're like, well, that, you know, that, that doesn't exist. And then we talk to them and they're like, oh my goodness, yeah. that exists. Yeah, when you're painting that picture, it's perfectly clear, right? Yeah. So if we talk about the future a little bit more, I mean, we can only guess, right? But I think it's quite the nice idea. I mean, we're, they're talking about that 40, 45% of the workforce will be self-employed already by 2040 or something. Yes. And I mean, that's going to be a big change for school and education as well. And what that's going to mean for us all. Uh, but I mean, if you would... If you would structure, would you do green school or how would the perfect school be for you? 
Um, so I mean, or a dream one, or like. Well, I mean, yeah. So so let's let's work with Green School as as a model mm-hmm. and example. So I think Green School does some things incredibly well. Mm-hmm. I think it does some things, you know, good, and then it has some things that. Um, I think there's actually other schools that may even do a little bit better. So what it does well is that there is not a focus on grades and testing. There are no grades given up through grade eight. They're only given in high school and because that's a requirement for universities because the kids that want to go to university and do that. The kids spend 60% of their time on average outside of the classroom. There's a huge focus on thematic learning, which is non-subject-centered, student-centered, integrating in the themat- you know, the different subjects into a particular theme, which gives a context and as well as a, an understanding as to what they're learning. So there's some amazing things that are done. Service is a key part of what the school does. So giving back, yeah. but not... You know, not the service for, you know, getting into Harvard and every single kid that applies in the world has done their one week of service in in Africa. And, you know, the the admissions department is just looking at this thing. It's it's just it's ridiculous. It's Mm -hmm. not it's not service. It's ticking a box. So Green School does some good things, some great things. And, you know, it does a lot of good things where it can be getting better and evolving is still more consciously addressing the whole child. And so what I mean by that is still the, the, the focus at Green School, while better than other schools, is still too much around the mind and the intellect. And we, we, we forget about the rest of the, of the whole child. So, for example, you know, while we were sitting here, and your listeners may have heard it in the background, but a gong went off. And every day at 2 o'clock, this gong goes off. And, it, and it's for 30 seconds, and it rings three times, gongs three times. And when that happens, the whole school just stops, whether you're doing PE, whether you're having a meeting, whether parents are meeting, and it's just about settling. And you feel the energy of the school settle. And that is an opportunity for a child to go from doing something to, for a moment, for just 30 seconds, just settling and being in presence with, with, them, with themselves. And the research around meditation and presence is very, very powerful. So there's a lot of work that's been done in New York City and a lot of inner city work that's been done around meditation and presence, which is a very difficult concept for parents to be thinking, you know, why should we be spending time on this? Like, you know, just go go to a yoga class after school. But, But this is an opportunity that allows the child not to lose who they are under any circumstances. And so when we're sending these kids out into the world, thinking that they're so smart because of their heads, but they have abandoned the rest of themselves, it's quite dangerous, actually. And so I think more focus around, around the, the, the spiritual component is a, is a very, very critical thing. Uh, and it's and a hard one. What I want to say, it's hard because we like to measure things yes, again. Yes, of course. And That's we right. can't really measure it. Yes. And I mean, it's hard because... Doing meditation with one person, I mean, it's about energies and who you're sitting next and who you're connecting with. So, I mean, for one kid, it doesn't work with this teacher, whatever, but it will work with someone else, right? Yes. So it's harder in that way to kind of get to it, but yeah. Yeah, and it isn't, and again, it's not about forcing, like, okay, you're going to meditate, you have to enjoy this for 15 minutes. It's about providing that child a tool that allows them to be able to access a... Um, a, a different a different aspect mm. of their of their being, but I mean another example is um, just relationships and communication. Mm-hmm. What is the biggest challenge that we have in our own personal relationships as adults? It is about communicating. It is about sharing. It's about honesty. How much time do we actually spend in school working on that? Almost none. Mm. Now, it is part of a value structure somewhere on a board in the school. It'll say, you know, do this and, hey, speak honest and be. But but how do we practice it? So if I I would have a class that is on communication, sexuality and intimacy taught every single day to almost every single grade that goes for the entire year of class. Now, this isn't about having, you know, Miss Mary or Mr. Ford stand up the class to be telling the kids how to communicate and, you know, about sex and all these different things. But it allows the children an opportunity to be talking and to be sharing on these ideas. Could you imagine if we are putting children out in the world who all know how to understand 
and tap into a more balance between their male and their female energies. And so it is, you know, so I think that there are things that we can do very simply that help to acknowledge and continue to address the the whole child. And, but ultimately, really school needs to be fun. And that doesn't mean easy. That doesn't mean that the kids aren't challenged, but they should enjoy, like we were talking about, they should enjoy going to school. And that's something you see at Green School. I mean, I never, I mean, you can see kids who's 15 coming, oh, where have you been to a teacher? I've been gone for three. I mean, I never saw that in a school before. And also something, because people ask me like, so what do you think about the school? And my kids have gone to this school now for six months. And I say, I don't really know what they're learning, but I see they're asking different questions. I mean, they have a way of like watching the world in another way. And that's like good enough for me to, but I see that something is happening in there kind of in another way. Yeah. And that's and really, really interesting. If we have children that are naturally, you know, inquisitive and curious about things, they're going to learn so much more rather than be forced to be learning this this quantitative you know, assessment of, of a, a certain amount of, of information. Yeah. And so I find it just crazy when we're, we're dictating what children, you know, we should get them excited about history, get them excited about science, get them excited about mathematics, and then give them a platform that allows them to develop and learn those, those different disciplines. Yeah. And I also think we limit ourselves on the models around learning and education. So for example, with students going out into the world right now and getting in debt 200,000 or a quarter of a million dollars, imagine if you got together with 10 of your best friends when you've, when you've graduated from high school and each of you just put in $50,000 and find the greatest mentor in the world, an educational mentor who has broad knowledge but is going to be there for you, supporting you, and doesn't necessarily even need to be physically present with you. And then as a class, as a group, you're studying online from MIT and Stanford and University of Edinburgh and all these different great universities in the world. And you're doing a little bit of homeschooling and a little bit of world schooling. And that is, to me, could be a such a powerful learning model where you're working with friends and you're doing different things because I believe in the power of e-learning. Like I love things like mm-hmm. Udacity and Coursera and the Khan Academy I think is, is outstanding in what it does. But it, it is going to be for a very select group of children yeah. that might on their own push themselves through the learning of just e-learning. So I think it's a supplement or a complement mm-hmm. to, to different things. But there aren't you know, so instead of this idea that you have to get a degree in this, there are so many different options that, that we can be doing around learning that open the children up. Even let's take away this idea that you have to go to university after high school. Like maybe you know, take a gap year or two years and they go back and they study history or poetry or something that, that just that adds back to, to what they're doing. And of course, there's a practicality to this, you know, and, you know, you know people that, you know, pe- families that maybe don't have the money and I understand those practicalities exist, but there are so many models that can be available to us that I think we need to be thinking about as we move forward in the future. After being a director at Green School, you were director of Hobud co-working space in Ubud, and then you started The Bridge, who is a co-working space here at Green School. So what's your passion in that? Well, it... Which is it filling? (laughs) Sometimes people say, you studied international relations, you went and worked at a video game high-tech company, you ran a school, and now you're doing co-working. Like, how is it connected, right? Well, what's interesting is that the co-working piece is a reaction to what has been happening within the education system. Mm -hmm. So around the world right now, there's about 20,000 co-working spaces. It is a huge exploding movement that's been happening for about the past 10 years. And effectively, it's for digital nomads or location-independent workers that want to be going and controlling their own time, mm-hmm. managing their own business, doing those things, traveling the world, having different experiences. But it is also a huge portion of the members are people who have been in the corporate world who are looking to find a new path, to pivot in their careers, to realign and to follow their passion. And so at Green School, so we have Green School, and there's kind of this joke here is that everyone says, oh yes, we've brought our kids here. But what I always say to people is like, it's as much for the adults as it is for the kids. But we have not had a place for the adults. 
So we have green school where the intention is the kids are there to be addressing the whole self, get this educational experience. And then we started the bridge, which we call green school for grownups, which allow adults to go in there to be activating their intentions. What do they want to be doing? And that may be just, I don't want to, I really don't want to do anything. I just want to hang out and relax and just be with my family. Mm -hmm. If you have that clear intention, that's great. But maybe some people want to change their careers or want to figure out how to stay here in Bali or start a business or get exposed to something else new. And so what's interesting is where what Green School is trying to prevent the disassociation of the spirit, you know, away from the rest of the body. Really what the bridge and many other community co-working spaces are doing, they are trying to reintegrate this concept of the quadrinity, mm-hmm. you know, the, the head and the heart and the emotion and the intellect. Mm-hmm. And so it is a response to what has happened in the educational world. So I see the co-working movement as a very, very powerful force of change. I think it actually could potentially be one of the most um, powerful social changers that exists, you know, over the next few decades. Hmm. Interesting. Just because you get all these people together and they want to create the change and they're educating because it allows people, it gives you a place rather than just up until 10 years ago, I'm not happy, I'm kind of fresh, well, I'll just do this, then I'll retire, then I'll get my pension or I'll do this and then I can live. You know, now it's, it is there. Yeah. And every city in the world has a co-working space and there's very big ones like a WeWork and there's many community-based spaces. So you go to a co-working space and you explore and you meet all these different people and it opens up your eyes. And this was what happened you know, to me, not necessarily with co-working, but when I left the video game industry, I thought there is no way there's ever going to be any industry that is more dynamic and engaging and interesting as, as the technology industry. Then I get in education. I'm like, there's never going to be an industry as more dynamic and engaging and yeah. interesting as education. And then I get into co-working and I'm like, there is never going to be anything more cool than this. And so- Such so, a life lesson in there, right? It totally, and yeah. it's about, you know, we, we trusting and these, these doors yeah. open up to us. Yeah. Happening. And at the bridge, we've only been open for six months, but we just had our first business launch. Someone mm-hmm. launched, you know, their electric scooter business last week. We've had people launching their individual coaching careers. I've talked to people who have wanting to give up their jobs and exploring different ideas. People, people meeting with with each other. I mean, someone said to me a little while back, you know, I've had a better conversation here at the bridge in the last 20 minutes than I've had over the past two years. Yeah. This isn't unique to Bali, right? Bali is a unique ple- place, but this, co- this this co-working and this collection of of you know of minds and and focus and great discussion isn't unique to here this happens all over the world but we get into our patterns you know we go to work you know we you we we go to the water cooler we talk about our company we go home we talk about our company we're on the weekends we're talking about our company the co-working allows you to be experiencing all these different people from all these different backgrounds mm-hmm. so it it's always putting you in a cognitive shift constantly throughout the day yeah. So to me, I find that very, very powerful, you know, and really, I mean, my goal with all of this is for, is the world to be kinder and nicer. Let's quit killing each other and raping each other and hurting each other, which I think is, has a lot to do with the disassociation of the Mm -hmm. spirit and allowing people to be pursuing things that they really want to be doing. That's more in line with their hearts. And I think that will, by nature, make them more successful, happier, and make the world a better place. Ta-da. That's fantastic. <laughs> no, it sounded a little bit condescending, but I didn't mean it like yeah, that. It was yeah. really like, yeah, I couldn't agree more, actually. Okay, good. You know? good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, and it is an amazing place. I mean, I never had, I mean, I've been a freelancer for over 20 years, but always felt so alone. It's like finding you're, you're still alone, but you're finding a kind of a tribe somewhere. Mm-hmm. And that makes the whole difference. And I've learned more in this co-working space than I've did, I did in years. Like you yeah. said, have better conversations than yeah. years. Yeah. Just because uh, people are coming from all different kind of directions as well. There's a key part of it, which is that it's non-judgmental. So see, people aren't in there competing. And when I was in the video game industry, every meeting was, yes, we right. need to be number yeah, one, yeah. we need to be, no one is in there trying to be number one in, a, in any co-working space. Ego kind of takes a, a little bit of a backseat mm-hmm. and it's collaborative. 
So it, it's a it's a very when we're looking at systemic change and and evolution and how we need to be looking at new economic models and new financial models and new learning models. Really, what's playing out very naturally within the co-working space is exactly the principles of what makes a very good learning environment and allows people to be able to explore and be more motivated yeah. about things. About the future. Are you a doomsday prepper or a happy camper? Oh, I'm a happy camper. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is just fine. <laughs> so, yeah, I doomsday is easy. Doomsday is easy. You know, the world's going to end and who cares and we're doomed and they, that is that is the easy thing. And and but what I mean, hey, there's no fun in that, right? That's just being a, a grumpy sod doing that. But and it isn't necessarily to look at the world through rose-tinted glasses. I really do believe that everybody in the world is good. Mm. Everybody. And and I think bad things happen to them. So underneath all this is this goodness and this kindness of what people want to be and who they actually are. And most people want the world to be good. Most people want to be helping the environment. Most people want to have equality. And most people don't want to be having abuse and violence within the world. But we get wrapped up in this, this little different percentage part of us where we're arguing against gun control or abortion or this issue or that issue. And that's the focus rather than, rather than on the whole. So I am, I am definitely a... I think the world's a good place person. Okay. <laughs> That's a pretty good ending to this story. <laughs> so thank you so much, Grace. This uh, was fantastic and interesting. And you give me hope now for <laughs> continuing. And I hope for you all listeners out there as well can get some bits and pieces of how you can think concerning your kids at school or if you're an educator, maybe how you can take it further. And yeah, how we maybe can change the world a little bit to be a little bit more kind. My kids have not been part of this special school for two years, and the time with them are ending. Between me and my husband and other parents, one of the most talked about, I would say, issues of having your kids at a progressive school like this is a certain worry about taking your kids out of the ordinary schooling system. You kind of want to eat the cookie and still have it. And I must say, at times, it has been scary. Are we really doing the right thing? I mean, it's the education of my kids we're talking about here. They have been learning tons of new things, but again, it's hard to break new territory. Doubt certainly seeps in. But I wouldn't change this experience for anything. And let's get back to this in a half year or so when my kids are back in the normal Swedish schooling system. Then we can talk. This interview was made before Corona times. And since then, Green School also opened in New Zealand and soon another will be coming to Tulum in Mexico. A similar school and also well recommended is the real school in Budapest. Thank you so much for listening and thank you Chris for this talk. I really enjoyed it. Bye bye now.